If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1939, a colourful cast of curators, museum directors and civil servants embarked on a top-secret mission to protect Britain's national art collections from the Nazi threat. It's a story that Caroline Shenton examines in her new book, National Treasures. And she joined Emily Briffer on the podcast to explain how these dedicated men and women devised ingenious escape plans and hid artworks in the most unlikely of places, in a race against time to save the nation's heritage. So hello to you, Caroline. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Today we are going to be talking about your new book, National Treasures, which follows the story of the operation to protect the British nation's art and artefacts during the Second World War, and also the story of the people behind it. So I wanted to start by asking you, how did you get into researching this topic? Well, I'm professionally an archivist, and I started my first job at the public record office in Chancery Lane in the early 1990s. Today, that's the National Archives and it's moved to Kew. 
Uh, but then I was in this enormous building, this enormous treasure house in central London. And I heard the most amazing story about what had happened to Doomsday Book in the Second World War, which was that it was evacuated from London in the days before the war in an armed van. And it was heading to Somerset. It was heading to Shepton Mallet Prison. And they made such great time down the Great West Road that they arrived half an hour early and the prison wasn't ready for them. So they parked up by the Market Cross and got out of the van and went off to have a pint of cider to refresh themselves, leaving the van unlocked after all of these arrangements to have an armed guard and it's going down in convoy and so on. And I just thought that was absolutely hilarious. And that stayed with me. Doomsday Book, of course, is England's oldest public record, the survey of land holdings by William the Conqueror of his new kingdom in 1086. And yes, it stayed with me. And now here we are some 30 years later and I've managed to get it into a book. But it did start me off on the track of what happened to other great national treasures during the war. So why did you choose to share this particular story? What do you think makes it an important story to tell? Well, I suppose it's really a forgotten story. Everybody's heard about Operation Pied Piper, which is the evacuation of one and a half million children and vulnerable adults from London and other great cities during the Second World War to get them to safety in the countryside. And they had a variety of adventures and sometimes they went to billets that were very welcoming and sometimes they went to those which were less welcoming. But there is another mass evacuation story to be told and that's of what happened to the millions of collections, national treasures in London that got evacuated as well. And they had similar experiences, a very varied set of adventures themselves. So I'd like to bring that story back to life. So can you tell us a little bit of this story? Maybe how did this plan actually come into fruition? Well, it seems extraordinary looking back on this now, but in 1933, the same week that Hitler came to power, a top secret cabinet subcommittee had been called together to look at what should happen to London's national collections if there were ever to be another war. And you have to remember that this is a generation that had survived the Great War, but it cast a hugely long shadow over their perceptions of what would happen if war broke out again. And in the 1930s, people were convinced that what was going to happen was that immediately another war were declared, there would be lightning strikes on the capital, almost instantaneously, combined with bombings from the air of poison gas. And so this is what was informing their planning. In fact, of course, that isn't what happened. We had nine months of phony war. But all of those arrangements were predicated on this idea that things had got to be out of London before anything began to happen. So from about 1934, all sorts of arrangements were made with stately homeowners, with the London Underground uh, and with other possible refuges for uh, for the protection of these national treasures. That's not to say all of those arrangements went smoothly. I mean, these were arrangements on paper. The actual reality became much more complicated as time went on. What was the general feeling at the time of moving all of these national treasures, all these national collections? Was everyone up for moving them out of London or was there some problems? Well, I think the directors of the museums and the curators involved were 
very up for moving them out of London because they saw what was going on in Europe. They saw what was happening as the Nazis began to sell off uh, Jewish masterpieces, started to produce um, the famous exhibition uh, Degenerate Art. They knew that certain forms of art were going to be targeted by the Nazis, if not by bombing. If invasion occurred, then things would be confiscated. They might be deliberately destroyed. And uh, there was also the possibility, I suppose, that certain items that were viewed as Germanic, or if you like, in in inverted commas, Aryan, that that they might be used themselves as propaganda tools, which is almost a fate worse than than destruction itself, really, to have your national heritage turned around in that way against you to, to, to shore up a perverted racial ideology. So that that was the concern, but actually the one of the biggest obstacles was the practical arrangements for how these things would be packed up and then dispatched to the countryside. So one of the great developments in the late 1930s was something called the no-nails box, which sounds extremely mundane now, and we're very familiar with its modern-day counterpart, and that is the flat pack box, which we're all familiar with from Moving House. (laughs) But um, then the idea of a flat pack box was completely new and innovative. It had been invented, uh, like I said, in the late 1930s, and the British Museum, for example, ordered 3,000 of these to store in its basements to wait until possibly the signal came to evacuate. So there were those arrangements going on. And then there were the arrangements about actually commissioning the transport. So the lorries required, but more particularly the trains required and the routes that the trains were going to go on, how were items going to be protected within the containers? And indeed, where were they going to end up? So you said a little bit about it being a plan on paper, but when was the real crisis point of, we need to get on with this, we need to work on this, we need to get moving. Yeah. The balloon went up on the 23rd of August 1939, which was the trigger for that was the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And that was the moment at which Whitehall contacted all of the directors of the major institutions in London and said, right, time to put your plans into operation. And that was was late on the evening of the 23rd. And you know, by six o'clock on the morning of the 24th, the curators had been called in and they were all starting to pack up their collections and get the the containers in the courtyards ready to take them away. Was this a united action by lots of museums and galleries or were people organising it separately? Well, technically speaking, there was an overall committee in charge of this, but the reality was that each organisation made their own arrangements. I mean, they did consult amongst one another, but really they they did their own thing, both in terms of the destinations for these collections, but also how they approached what was going to be evacuated and what wasn't going to be evacuated. They had priority lists of what they regarded as their absolutely top treasures and then other lists of the less important treasures and depending on that sort of triaging process things went to different destinations. So about this priority list what sort of things were placed up at the top and what sort of things were placed maybe slightly lower down? I dare not say at the bottom but what placed slightly lower down? What was the difference? Well for example uh, I used to be director of the parliamentary archives and 
in the parliamentary archives, the top collections included things like Charles I's death warrant, the Bill of Rights, the 1834 Great Reform Act, sorry, 1832 Great Reform Act, um, uh, and they went off to the Bodleian Library in Oxford. But the vast majority of parliamentary collections headed off to a country house in Hampshire called Laverstoke Park. So it's those sorts of distinctions that were being made. And every museum and art gallery has those sorts of layers of different collections even today. What sort of scale of a project are we looking at here? I'm I'm presuming we're not just talking about a few boxes worth. No, we're not. We're talking about thousands of boxes. Uh, We're talking at the National Gallery, we're talking about 2,000 paintings. At the Public Record Office, we're talking about something like 750 tonnes of records having to be dispatched. So this is a massive operation. But actually, around this time, the week before war was actually declared, there was so much going on on the roads, so so much, so many troop manoeuvres, people moving to the countryside. Um, anyway, as a result of Operation Pied Piper, everything being put into uh, the arrangements that the government had made that actually it probably wouldn't have been too noticeable that these things were being packed up and being dispatched. It was only once people came to realise that the doors of the museums were shut and that there was nothing left inside them that people realised what had happened. How secret was it kept from the public? Presumably they might have noticed the museum doors were shut, but did they know much more? I presume they wouldn't have necessarily known where they'd all gone to. No, they wouldn't have known where. I mean, there were one or two stories in the papers about, you know, national treasures are being packed up. But, you know, this isn't, (laughs) this wouldn't perhaps have been a surprise. But, um, and people obviously, if they'd managed to get into any of the galleries, and, and some galleries kept their least precious collections on the walls, perhaps, or things like duplicates and so on, or or photographic, you know, images of what had disappeared. They kept them on the walls. But it would have been very obvious to the public that, you know, galleries and museums were largely emptied out. But they wouldn't have known about the ultimate destinations. Now, whether people in the local areas near the stately homes and manor houses and underground mines and so on, where some of these collections went to, had an inkling is another matter. And I think there probably was a great deal of discretion by some local people who would have seen paintings and other objects perhaps going in and out of uh, secret destinations. And they'd certainly have been aware of new people in the village, uh, people, people coming from a gallery or some central London institution suddenly being billeted on them in their country village. But people were very discreet. There weren't there weren't uh, there weren't leaks as there would be today. I mean, if it happened today, then you'd get people snapping away all over social media, and nothing could possibly have been kept secret. When was the British nation actually allowed to know of what had been going on? It was really in terms of how they found out about when individual organisations had done. So, for example, Kenneth Clark at the National Gallery broadcast on the BBC uh, in in the days after VE Day about the fact that the pictures were coming back to the National Gallery and that they had been in Wales during the course of the war. Actually, he'd been doing broadcasts through the war, describing how he had visited his paintings, but he didn't give away where they actually were. But actually, in some cases, people didn't realise where some of these collections had been. It's, It's, in some cases, an untold story. The National Gallery collection 
uh, stories are the best known simply because Kenneth Clark was such a uh, an extraordinary publicist both for the gallery and for himself and you know, he wrote he wrote various volumes of autobiography as well in which uh, you know the full story came out how has this almost secretive nature of this how has that affected your research Oh, interesting. Yes. Well, uh, certainly a number of the archive files that I researched had large quantities of stamped secret (laughs) in ink, (laughs) sort of uh, uh, designations on the front of them. There's nothing secret now, but some things were only released uh, in the early 70s. And some arrangements uh, continued into the 40s and 50s because of the threat of nuclear war and the Soviet Union. So some of the files that I looked at uh, continued beyond the war with correspondents discussing, well, can we use these same locations if there's a nuclear war? The underground storage, the huge underground storage locations had in fact been decommissioned at the end of the war. Um, But by the late 1940s, there were queries about shouldn't we start to actually prepare them again, given we can see another threat coming. So um, nothing secret today, but there clearly was top secret discussion going on in the decades following the war. So moving on slightly, what about collections that couldn't be removed from the museums and galleries? What happened to them? Yes, so some collections, either because they were lower priority or just because they were just too enormous or too heavy to move, were either put into basements if they were light enough, or if they were too heavy to move, then they would be sandbagged up, protected in that way, and have sort of, um, you know, brick sheds built around them, and then sandbags put around to prevent them from being destroyed, or at least to provide some sort of protection if there was going to be bombing from the air. It must have been very unusual to have walked into the, a museum or gallery and that's what you see instead of all the beautiful yes, the other I think, artifacts. I, I, think, I think in those cases people wouldn't have been given access to the sandbagged collections at all. Although one or two journalists do. H.V. Morton, the, uh, the journalist, did do a series of columns in early 1940 describing what what was going on in various galleries. He went to the underground store the British Museum had set up in the Aldwych Tube Tunnels and he also visited the Tower of London, you know, without the, tra- the crown jewels there anymore and, and, and reported back. So he reported that things weren't there, but he didn't say where they had gone to. <laughs> there seems to have been such a diversity of where these were all moved to, from, like, say, tube tunnels to... I know, I think you mentioned about castles in your book as well and quarries and stately homes. But could you maybe tell us a little bit more about these places and why were they chosen? Really, the removals came in a couple of stages. The initial removals were generally to places above ground um, because it was felt so long as they were out of London, they would be safe. So that involved removals to country houses. And the reason why country houses were often chosen is because these were the residences of maybe trustees of the museum or people who were already known to the Office of Works, which was the government department in charge of finding the billets for these collections. So it was sort of a question of who you know, or sort of, you know, somebody, somebody's cousin had got a got a, an empty stately home where this stuff could be stored. So um, that, that, was, that was one way of approaching it. Uh, there was also a distinction to be made between 
organic collections, that is collections that were perishable, so uh, things on paper or parchment or papyrus, um, and inorganic collections, so metal, stone, and jewellery, if you like, jewels. Um, so the inorganic stuff could go into underground tunnels or places that weren't damp-proofed. So that was a, a, an obvious destination, for example, for the British Museum's um, uh, uh, sculpture collections. That's where the Parthenon marbles, the so-called Elgin marbles, um, ended up. And, uh, for example, the crown jewels as well ended up in, a, in an underground tunnel underneath Windsor Castle. Um, packed into a bath of a biscuit tin rather extraordinarily <laughs> in case it needed to be seized and quickly and then sort of uh, rushed away from Windsor if the Germans ever got that far. Um, but yes, things, things above ground uh, tended to be uh, things like drawings, paintings, watercolours, tapestries, things that would perish if they were in damp conditions. So that was the first phase. But then after the fall of France in May 1940, all those plans had to be reconsidered because the Nazis were able to use the aerodromes all the way across the northern French coast and also Belgium and the Netherlands, it meant that parts of Britain that had previously been thought safe were no longer safe. So quite a lot of collections went to North and West Wales. That was now under threat because it was possible for the Luftwaffe to get, for example, to Liverpool. And it meant that they were now in the firing line. So at that point, for quite a lot of the collections, they began to look for proper underground protection, which would be impenetrable for any sort of bombing from above. And uh, the two main depositories were Manod Moor, which was a mountain in the middle of Snowdonia, where the National Gallery and some other collections ended up in the middle of a slate mine that was converted. And also Westwood Quarry in the Mendips near Bath, which was uh, a converted mushroom farm. In fact, it had been immediately before the war. Not a great, not a great place, you might think, to, to store your heritage collections. But that was um, part, of, part of a huge underground complex that was, had been occupied for military use. And a small corner of it was given over to the British Museum and the VNA and a number of other collections. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... Eventually, it did actually explode, and that is the that was the crater that was created beside the National Gallery that ultimately became what today is the the, the, the Sainsbury Wing of the National Gallery. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In the storage and transportation of the artwork, the documents, the objects, what were the challenges for conservation and the protection of them? Presumably having to transport all of all of these and keep them safe is a massive challenge. That's a really interesting question. So everything was packed up really securely, paper wrappings and uh, padding, blankets and so on to stop things being damaged on the way in transit, if you like. Once they were actually in their homes, then there were a variety of ways of keeping them safe from things like uh, mould and mildew and from insects and from the potential risk of fire. Very interestingly, the conditions which the National Gallery and the British Museum managed to establish in its underground stores, the ones at Manod and the one, the one at Westwood, were... They were commissioned by two of the scientists in charge of the conservation laboratories of those institutions, a man called Ian Rawlins at the National Gallery and a man called Harold Plenderleaf at the British Museum. And the conditions which they established there to keep the temperature and humidity of those spaces at the right levels so that mould and so on didn't grow on the collections really became the standards after the war for how museum and art gallery collections should be kept. And today's national standards for heritage storage, international standards even, are the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of of those conditions that were established during the the London evacuations. Very much something that we've taken away and learnt from that experience. Well, that's right. And that's one of the great legacies of this whole operation because conservation science took an enormous leap forward uh, because it was, it was almost like these collections were, were in a sort of giant guinea pig experiment. <laughs> I don't comment. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably these collections aren't all small things or particularly easy to manoeuvre. How exactly were they transported? I think you've mentioned trains and lorries and that kind of thing, but how was that organised? They were simply packed into the backs either of lorries or they were put onto railway containers, driven to the nearest station in London, put onto the back of trains and headed off to the nearest station to their destinations. And the rail companies were fully 
involved in all of this and provided an amazing service in in those 10 days or so just before the war but you know there were there were some improvisations that had to be made once the blitz hit london in the autumn of 1940 a number of collections which had been thought should stay on site in central London had to be moved because nobody had quite anticipated quite how ferocious the Blitz was going to be. And an example of that is the banqueting house ceiling in Whitehall, the great Rubens masterpiece, his painting of the apotheosis of James I. The Office of Works had decided that they weren't going to move it, they were simply going to protect it on site. The reason they didn't want to move it is because at the beginning of the 20th century, the canvases, uh, nine of the these canvas, huge canvases had been glued to a plywood backing, which seems... <laughs> Sorry, it's just see, I'm quite speechless about that, but that's what had happened at the beginning of the 20th century, obviously, to somehow stabilise them. So what that meant was that whereas, you know, they'd been able to get into the uh, banqueting house in the 17th century, having now been glued at the beginning of the 20th century, they couldn't be got out because... The windows were too small to let these huge ply, plywood <laughs> plywood sheets with Rubens canvases stuck to them to get out. So, in fact, what had to happen with the, the banqueting house ceiling was that it was sawn up. It was sawn up into 21 separate pieces and then put onto the back of a Pixford's lorry and driven to a safe house called Hall Barn in Buckinghamshire. Were the hosts of these sites and these locations, did they have a choice in supporting these efforts or how were these collections greeted by their new hosts? Well, in terms of whether they had a choice, very often the hosts had volunteered their services because before the war, people knew that they were likely to have evacuees and they'd much rather, in some cases, have art evacuees, which they thought were going to sort of add to their own local art collections and be decorative than having, you know, kids from the East End who were incontinent or squaddies practising manoeuvres in the landscape park. So actually offering yourself up to host, you know, a museum or gallery collection was actually very, very popular. But the reality turned out to be somewhat different because very often uh, these hosts discovered that they didn't just get, you know, they didn't have the turners and the constables ready to hang on their walls. All of these things were packed up. They were covered with blankets and brown paper. In the case of museum collections, they were often in very large crates that simply were stacked up in the best rooms of the house, forcing the families out into the servants' quarters. And the hosts also had the responsibility of keeping the conditions right for the collections as well. They'd got to heat the rooms so that we didn't get mould growing on them. And that cost a lot of money. And then there were rows between them and the government about how much the cost had been and which proportion belonged to the house and which proportion belonged to the museum collections and so on. Um, and uh, yes, in some in some places, uh, the relations relations broke down uh, between the the host families and and the uh, the organisations themselves. So you know there were uh, the warders who'd come to to guard the the items. You know, sort of wanted extra meals, and uh, maybe they wouldn't help out with household chores, or they they'd go off to the pub and come back drunk, uh, or in in one case, you know, be harassing harassing parlour maids, or you know. Just, just basically being in the way and being unwelcome guests. 
so the reality did not did not often meet the uh, the expectations of, of of the volunteer custodians. I think in your book you mentioned that it wasn't only the houses that were being investigated when they were thinking about where they would like to move their collections, but also the actual hosts themselves. I think you bring up some quite a, quite a few interesting notes from the investigators. Uh, yes, this is this is Martin Davis of the National Gallery, who is the, uh, one of the uh, assistant curators there, who was charged with inspecting the likely billets where the National Gallery pictures should go before the war. And yes, he kept a secret notebook where he noted down what he thought about the owners as well. Uh, which is quite funny. So, um, yes, uh, comments about them sort of being uh, being helpful or not, or um, you know, being uh, being difficult or not. And uh, yes, that's. Uh, uh, I don't think the owners realised that they themselves were also being inspected because, of course, that was a key relationship. It was really important that the the organisations in, involved were able to to build a good relationship with. Um, uh, with the custodians and in some cases they did the national portrait gallery went to mentmore towers in buckinghamshire where they had a great time and that was largely down to the land agent at mentmore being incredibly helpful and similarly uh, the collections of what today is the british library going to the National Library of Wales at Aberystwyth, they were welcomed with open arms by William Davis, the National Librarian of Wales, who basically gave over a huge, an entire wing of the new National Library building to house the treasures of the British, what, what was then the British Museum Library. So two Magna Cartas, the Lindisfarne Gospels, um, the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, Gutenberg Bibles and Shakespeare First Folios and so on. So it was it was definitely a mixed picture. Um, some some places very welcoming, other places not so welcoming. This is something that seems to come up in your book. That seems to be full of this extraordinarily colourful cast of characters. I think that's too much alliteration, but they really seem to sort of be brought to life. There seems to be such a variety. But who was it that was exactly involved in this process? Obviously, we can say the hosts and the museum curators, but there seems to be quite a lot of different people. And what roles were there to fill? Yeah, so I, I called this book National Treasures because it's not just about the collections. It's actually about the people involved as well. And I've described them as a an unlikely coalition of mild-mannered civil servants, social oddballs and metropolitan aesthetes who became the front line in the heritage war against Hitler. And yet these were people who'd never perhaps in some cases quite fitted into peacetime society. They were regarded as eccentrics at work and the war provided them with a chance to step out of the shadows. So there were the directors themselves of the various institutions. So Kenneth Clark, well known as being the director of the National Gallery, but also people like John Forsdyke, um, who was the uh, rather pompous, underachieving director of the British Museum at the time. He was very unpopular with his staff, but then once war came on, his autocratic manner became perfect for dealing with all the organisational challenges of evacuating the collections and he stepped up and he took charge of the firefighting at the British Museum because during the Blitz, the aim was to save life. It wasn't to save 
collections. Uh, and so very often these institutions had to do the firefighting arrangements themselves. So Forsdyke became a complete hero, whereas, you know, five years before he had been really unpopular with his staff, loathed almost. Uh, and then there were the custodians themselves, the, uh, the the people who took on these collections. So they were hugely varied lot as well. One of my favourite characters is uh, Lady Helena Gleichen, who gave a home to the Tate Gallery's pictures at her manor house, Helen's, in Herefordshire. She was the great niece, or the half-great-niece, I should say, of Queen Victoria. She was a lesbian and, and an artist, and during the First World War, she had run her own Red Cross X-ray unit with her female partner, on the Italian front, uh, and they they did tremendously brave deeds in taking X-ray photographs of wounded soldiers uh, on the Italian front, for which they were given bravery medals both in Italy and Britain for their activities. So they'd done that during the First World War, and then in the Second World War, they stepped up and offered up um, their manor house for the Tate's paintings. Um, and you know, Lady Helena was not not to be messed with. She was she was a <laughs> she was a crack shot. She'd once felled a felled a charging bull with a single shot. Um, you know, her favorite her favorite meal was uh, champagne, smoked salmon, and caviar. I like the sound of that. When France fell in May 1940, she marched into the local regimental headquarters and demanded 80 guns to give to the men that she was drilling on her estate in her own private home guard so yeah she's she's a great one so we've got the directors of the museums we've got the uh, the custodians and then we've also got the curators who were evacuated with their collections as well and and one of those for example um was uh, a man called Victor Shoulderer who was the British Museum Library's incunabulist so that's a specialist in books printed before 1500 and he was evacuated with his collections to Aberystwyth to the National Library and he was over 60 but he was on a rotor that meant that on a regular basis overnight he would head down the hill from the National Library of Wales uh, to an unsecret underground tunnel that they had built to protect their top collections and also the the British Museum Library's top collections. Um, he'd do that twice a night to check that the air conditioning was still working. And a number of these people were later found to have been on the Gestapo um, black book list, the list of uh, people who were to be rounded up if the Nazis succeeded in invaded and who would be rounded up and sent to the camps and Victor was one of them. That's a truly terrifying thought, really. Yes, and uh, the black book actually lists the different cultural institutions in London. Um, and so you can see that there were potentially preparations taking place you know, before, before invasion to identify which would be the target institutions where looting would take place or confiscation of works to be sent back to Berlin um, to, to perhaps potentially become part of Goering's bloated collection of Western masterpieces. Do we see maybe a lineup of the institutions that were on this list with those that were actually had their collections moved? Uh, they they were um, they were, but I mean, you know, it was, it was it was pretty straightforward to you know 
to list the, the big national museums and galleries. It's almost like the, well, in fact, we know that this is what happened with the Black Book is that they, it was really put together from uh, tourist guides. It wasn't actually sort of, <laughs> it hadn't been put together from in-person research. It was really a digest of tourist guides available in the 19, in 1930s Germany. But it did give an insight into where the Nazis felt that they would they would be targeting their heritage interests, let's put it like that. Obviously during the Blitz, and we know that London was bombed, but do we see any potential near misses where collections may have been moved and that building has been hit by firebombs or anything of the like? Yes, very much so. The National Gallery was bombed nine times. A huge unexploded bomb uh, landed nearby uh, and over the course of successive days was had to be dealt with by the bomb disposal team eventually it did actually explode and that is the that was the crater that was created beside the national gallery that ultimately became what today is the the, the, the Sainsbury Wing of the National Gallery. The British Museum suffered severe damage. The Imperial War Museum suffered terribly. The, the, the Tate Gallery, um, today Tate Britain, had a terrible time. That was one of the worst affected. And if you walk down the side of the Tate Gallery today, you can still see uh, the marks of the bombing, great chunks coming out of the stonework. And at the V&A, there was also severe damage along one of the walls, Again, the stonework shows that, and the VNA have actually turned that into their war memorial on the outside of the building. So there's an inscription among this pockmarked stone uh, commemorating the men and women of the VNA who died during the war. To jump around a little bit here, how did those involved see their role? Did they take perhaps great pride in it, or was it something for them that was just felt like that this was part of their job? Well, I think it was mixed. So some people felt this is part of my job. And they felt that this was this was how they were contributing to the war. For some of the curators, they were, if you like, delighted to have the opportunity to have the time now in their evacuated locations to really study the collections, properly catalogue them, get to understand them. Some of the younger curators felt that they should be on the on the front. They should have been called up, but they weren't allowed to be because they were in this restricted profession that that meant that they had to to carry on, you know, being with their collections. So so it was mixed. And some people said, you know, they did become they did become very bored and so on. One of the interesting aspects though is for the women curators, women had only begun to be taken on in London heritage institutions as curators, professional curators in the previous decade or so. And this was a chance for them to really step up. Because in some cases that their their male contemporaries had had gone to war, leaving leaving the women behind, and uh, so for example at the V&A, one of the curators there, a woman called Muriel Clayton, was played a very significant part in their evacuations uh, to Montacute House in Somerset, and um, she really became their lead person on on the evacuation and later wrote an official history of of what the V&A evacuations had actually been like. Um, so she's a really fascinating character. Uh, she spends quite a lot of her time at Montacute um, trying to prevent moth infestations in the in the oriel, oriental carpets of the V&A. And she's, uh, uh, she's constantly writing letters back to, to her bosses, uh, asking for more help to keep the moths down and, and worrying about the fire protection. And 
Montacute's quite close to Yeovil Aerodrome as well, so she's she's worried about that being bombed too. So um, there's a whole range of responses really amongst amongst these curators. What did those involved actually take away from this experience? Yes, so the, well, the relations between the British Museum Library and the National Library of Wales became extremely strong, and the curators carried on working together professionally and those professional contacts that they'd forged during the war, you know, bore fruit in the decades following the war because they'd all formed such a close team working together. In some cases, the scientific advances that I've mentioned uh, really made the name of those conservation scientists who had discovered them. So people like Harold Plenderleith, he went on to great professional success uh, internationally as um, one of one of the 20th century's greatest conservators. A number of people as well, as a result of their efforts, were given civilian honours and knighthoods. And I think all of them came away with a sense of having played their part in the war effort. And it is there is a sense that, you know, these are, these are people who... That there's a role for everybody in wartime, or at least in the Second World War. And I think that's why the Second World War is of such enduring interest still today and why, you know, there are constant books about it still and podcasts. Because we today, we we I think we're inclined to think, well, what would have been my contribution? How would I have been involved in this? And because I'm an archivist, I think, well, you know, I suppose I could have ended up at Bletchley Park doing the doing the filing or something, but maybe I would have been involved in uh, this sort of operation. And I think that's why people make such a big connection today with the Second World War. And so I, I say in my book, I think I paraphrase Milton and say, they also serve, who also pack and wait, who only pack and wait. So um, just just that sense that, you know, yes, every, everyone's got something to contribute. That was Caroline Shenton. Her book, National Treasures, Saving the Nation's Art in World War II, is out now, published by John Murray Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 